Hello, and welcome to the Innovation in Financial Inclusion podcast, focusing on innovative and emerging practice in financial inclusion. I'm Paul Vick from Community Finance Solutions at the University of Salford, a research unit specializing in financial inclusion and community finance. This series of the podcast will focus on financial education. Now, there's been a lot of focus and discussion on this topic over the last few years. In February 2023, the all-party parliamentary group on financial education for young people produced a report which recommended that all school-aged children should receive financial education by 2030. A 2022 report by the Centre for Social Justice made a number of recommendations for enabling lifelong financial learning. Over the coming five episodes, I'm going to be exploring financial education in different types of context, together with leading experts, practitioners and stakeholders. To start us off, I've spoken with Professor Brenda Kud and Lisa Davis. Brenda is Professor Emeritus at the University of Georgia. She's written over 200 papers on consumer decision-making and personal financial literacy. Lisa Davis is a Senior Policy and Propositions Manager at the Money and Pension Service with a remit covering children and young people. MAPS is an arm's-length body of the UK government sponsored by the Department for Work and Pensions, and its vision is everyone making the most of their money and pensions. It has a statutory duty to coordinate a national strategy to improve the provision of financial education for children and young people. So, Brenda, to start off with, perhaps you can provide us with a little bit of a definition of what, what we mean by by financial education and what sort of forms it might take? Certainly. So there are probably many definitions of financial education, but I will define it in the broadest sense as formal as well as informal efforts to influence financial knowledge, attitudes, and or behaviors. I think all of those things fit in financial education. So that would include parents modeling appropriate behavior to their children, uh, classroom education, a funny video on TikTok. Really, the format doesn't matter. It's the goal, what they're attempting to achieve, which is some change in someone's financial knowledge, attitudes, and or behaviors. Um, Lisa, does that sort of chime with uh, how you view yes. financial education within within the money and pension totally so. chimes with me so we know from our evidence that financial education good financial education financial education that works it covers as brenda said knowledge skills but not just knowledge and skills it covers attitudes mindsets and behaviors and we know if you to achieve uh, longer lasting behavioral change you need to work across all of those those domains so looking at mindset and resilience and um, problem solving and helping children and young people to um not make make good spending decisions. So that's sort of the, so the, in a way, the financial education is the solution for something. So Brenda, what would you say are some of the, what are some of the key problems or issues that that sort of financial education is, is intended to, to address? I think one of the, one of the problem areas is in financial education is the lack of consensus about what we're trying to accomplish with financial education. And if you think about what we just said it means, influencing knowledge, attitudes, behaviors, 
we could add skills, we could add confidence, we could add all sorts of things to that. Financial education is lots of very different things, uh, ranging from very well-meaning people who want to tell another population how to do this, and of course their way is the way to do this, uh, regardless of that population and its circumstances and whether that's even appropriate for them or not, to um, you know, very targeted outcomes, maybe a financial education program designed to help people reduce credit card debt, to very general outcomes like you'll have better financial well-being after this. So there are many, many issues, many of which are very appropriate if they're a good match for the audience. Um, so it's it's really hard to talk about financial education as this mm. monolithic concept because it's it's something different in almost every circumstance. That's interesting. So how does it fit in with the well, the money and pension service sits on the uh, financial well-being strategy. So how how mm -hmm. does financial education fit in? What are some of the policy outcomes and objectives that are linked to to, to financial education? Yes, as you've just said, we did coordinate the UK strategy for financial well-being, which was published in 2020, and that includes a national goal of uh, 2 million more children and young people receiving a meaningful financial education. And we set out plans in 2022 um, for initiatives which a range of organisations are working towards in order to help uh, more children receive a meaningful financial financial education. Um, what we what we mean by that is, um, as Brenda said, making sure children and young people can receive a meaningful financial education either in schools or in the home or ensuring that there's support for children and young people who uh, may be deemed in more vulnerable circumstances and therefore missing out on receiving a meaningful financial education in the classroom or within the home. Um, Money and Pension Service has a, has a range of things that it's done to try to improve the provision of financial education in schools. So we've done things like um, published guidance for schools and school leaders, looking at how they can embed it, embed it within the classroom and also within the um, teaching of the curriculum. We are at the moment funding a grant programme which looks at how you scale and embed teacher training within the classroom. And the uh, evaluation is supposed to set out approaches um, to what works in scaling support for teachers. The evaluation for that is due to be published in not till June 24, but we are um, coming up to the nearly coming up to the uh, end of the delivery phase of that project. And we also do a lot of work where we support the provision of financial education in the home. So we have something that we call um, Talk, Learn, Do, and that supports parents to talk to their children uh, about money and embed money conversations within the home throughout their kind of everyday lives. So when they're making things like spending decisions or going to the shops or looking at how um, you might manage um, money or give children small amounts of money, such as pocket money, for example, and the benefits of being able to do that, even if it's a really, really, really small amount. But yeah, we did quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so Brenda, you were saying that there's, there's really lots of different things that financial <laughs> education is supposed to 
address and there's no real sort of sort of consensus of it but what would you say are the i guess as a as a researcher who's looked at uh consumer well-being and consumer consumer protection what do you think are the what do you think is the critical or most important potential role that that financial education can play I think in general, financial education is most beneficial if it addresses someone's needs at that point in their lifetime. So I would say broadly, um, especially in the US, but I suspect this resonates in other countries as well, managing and using financial services, credit cards, banking, Mm -hmm. uh, loans, uh, insurance, all of those kinds of things are priorities for a couple of reasons. One, when educators or officials look to experts for help with creating curriculum and training teachers. They often go to the financial services sector for that help. So there's sort of this natural bias. Well, you know, if we want to teach about credit cards, we know who to ask to help us um, get the right information about credit cards. What's lacking, though, in that approach is understanding the, the human perspective to this. So, you know, a curriculum is really heavy on terms and uh, understanding how interest rates work is fine, but it's just as important to understand why people use credit cards, why they only make, say, the minimum payments when they have the money to make the payment in full, understanding those sort of behavioral perspectives, how you encourage people not only to set goals, but to look at ways to overcome obstacles to achieving goals and to plan in advance for for how you do that. So among college students, for example, there's great interest in understanding how I use credit, um, how I begin to build a credit history in the US, how I manage my student loans, but taxes don't seem very relevant to them. you know, so it's it's what is in the moment that is often what people are most interested in. And then the challenge is how do you prepare them for those things that you know are coming, but they they don't yet feel ready to absorb that knowledge or show interest enough in that to to get the information they might need when that does come up. And I guess, Lisa, that chimes with some of the stuff that you were talking about, how your policies and work is really around the whole life cycle of sort of from a few years old through to uh, coming to planning your uh, retirement or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's true. We know um, skills and attitudes towards money uh, begin to develop very early because they're seeing, um, you know, money management uh, in in the home. Um, But we also know that actually not many children and young people are receiving a meaningful financial education in the home or or in schools so and that's despite it being on the curriculum or the national curriculum in um, England for secondary um, age children and embedded in part of the curriculum for um, primary age children but we're still seeing quite worrying trends so we've got um you know, half of 18 to 25 year olds feel anxious about money. We've got around two thirds who can't perform very simple 
uh, calculations when it comes to adding up things like interest earnings and savings balances. And we also know that um, over half of children, young people aged 16 to 17 are unable to uh, read a payslip. So we know that, you know, young people are leaving, leaving school, not prepared for their a good financial future. And I think what we're both saying is, or at least I believe strongly that financial education is lifelong learning. Uh, no one should say, well, I took a course in, in school and I'm finished uh, because not only does what we need to know change as we mature and our circumstances change, but the market changes, the op op options available to us change, the way we buy and use those options change. So it's lifelong learning. And some would say that the most important thing that young children can learn is this sense of agency that I can be responsible for the choices I make. I should be responsible for the choices I make and factual things that they can learn later. But if they don't start with this sense of agency, then they're not as interested in learning the tools, the knowledge that they need to implement that and make choices in their own life. So there's evidence to that suggests that people often lack the necessary financial knowledge and skills to manage their finances. But Brenda, what does the academic research say about the impact of financial education? Mm -hmm. well, well, first, let me say that anybody who's ever taught financial education knows it makes a difference. We all have stories we can tell about individuals who come up to us right afterwards or days or weeks or months or even years later and said, you know, that changed my life. That sometimes it's one thing that you said that resonated with them that that made a big difference. But in terms of research, that's pretty spotty. So one of the issues is that far too many financial education programs are designed without any evaluation plan. So there's no intention of finding out if they worked or not. And if there is an evaluation plan, it's often immediately afterwards and it's focused more on, you know, did you learn anything rather than did it change your knowledge, attitudes or behaviors? But when we look at really well done research, the messages are mixed. There's some evidence that matters, some other evidence that it doesn't matter. But I would argue that that it's close to impossible to look at a body of research about financial education and reach a conclusion. So it'd be like saying, does it matter if you take vitamins? Well, which vitamins, which people, for which outcome? So when you try to look at financial education across a variety of programs, with different goals for different audiences, suggesting different outcomes, then I would assume we'd get a mishmash of sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and that's pretty much what a lot of the research says. Yeah, I guess it's always it's always going to be, I think, very complicated to isolate financial education from all the other mm -hmm. things that, that play in. Uh, and yeah, at what point do you measure it and what do you how do you measure what sort of decisions people make mm -hmm. down down the line? So and and especially because we're most interested in long term impacts. So mm -hmm. whatever your definition of long term is, uh, it, but if we have two or three or four years since the education, what else has changed in that period of time that might either prevent people from acting on 
good information they received in an educational program or help them or maybe some good outcome occur occurred because of other changes and they didn't do anything. Um, so it's it's a very, very difficult area for there to be research that we can reach strong conclusions. Lisa, because Money and Pension Service has funded sort of financial education uh, programs in the past, uh, partly also under the What Works uh, mm -hmm. Fund, which uh, funded some innovative uh, work, but also crucially, all of the projects were required, I think, to have some sort of evaluation component, which which addresses what's, what, what Brenda was, was talking about. So is there any sort of lessons or things that have come out of this work? Any sort of uh, insights that uh, about, about the impact of financial education? Yeah, so we've done, like you said, you've just said, we do a lot of research in this area. And we're not a delivery organisation. So one of our, our functions is to look at the evidence around what works and work with um, people who do provide the uh, financial education to improve improve their provision. Um, but there is quite, there is lots of evidence around what about the certain things that do work so we know that teacher and practitioner training um does help improve the teachers and practitioners confidence in being able to deliver financial education but also it improves the uh, mindset and ability of the um, behaviors of the children and young people that they teach we know that teachers and other professionals um, value uh, high quality resources that support the implementation of financial education. Um, we also know that um, teachable moments are important. So working with children and young people as they transition into independence will have a, a gives them a real life context in which to apply apply their learning as they get older and are starting to make independent financial decisions. We also know that uh, working with parents is really important. So um, in England, most children and young people say they would turn to their parents if they needed advice about money, um, but parents don't always feel confident in talking to their children about money. So there's a really important piece of work in terms of how we support um, support parents. And I think the final thing that we know that's really important is that um, financial education really does need to start quite early. So because of the skills, knowledge and attitudes being developed um, from a significantly young, young age, and we can see uh, attitudes towards money developing in children and young people between the ages of three and seven. And Brenda, so you, as, a, as an academic and I guess also as a practitioner, having delivered some financial education yourself, is there anything you would like to to add to that sort of uh, list of, of of key lessons or key points? I think all of those things are also important, and we know that from what we call in-service education here in the states for classroom teachers. Um, but I think confidence is so important. So teacher confidence in being able to address this topic is is has to be there for them to even reach out and get more information and be able to teach this. 
confidence in the individual to apply what they actually know. What I've seen among co the college students that I teach is that, um, and we'll do gender stereotypes here, but men say they've got this even when they don't have the knowledge and women are far less confident even when they have the knowledge. So we can't ignore this confidence component and what the sort of confidence that I've tried to instill in the people that I work with is, um, you know, first of all, by engaging in this at all, you're steps ahead of everybody else who's outside this room, who, who haven't shown this interest, haven't shown this intention to learn more about managing money. And all the answers you need are somewhere out there. You just need to know what the questions are. So I encourage that sort of critical thinking. Um, and I think that matters a lot for both the teachers and the learners. What a great way to kick off our podcast series on financial education. Brenda and Lisa pointed out a number of things that I will be following up with guests in future podcast episodes around this topic. I'd like to highlight four things that I learned from, from this conversation. The first one is that financial education is not monolithic or uniform. It takes a variety of forms, whether that's sort of classroom-based or uh, video or whatever it might be. It's provided in lots of different contexts, not just in schools, but also in within families, in workplaces and the community more broadly. The second thing I learned is that financial education really relates to a huge variety of outcome goals and policy objectives. It's not just about financial literacy and skills and knowledge, but it's also about attitudes and mindset and building resilience and influencing behaviors. My third takeaway is that financial education is not a one-off thing, something you just do and then move on. It's a lifelong learning journey where you you draw on it to address specific needs you have at specific points in your in your life. The final thing I learned is that if we're going to help people to deliver financial education, whether that be parents or carers or educators, we need to build their confidence in delivering it. It's not enough just to have you know, have the skills and, and knowledge about it, but you need to be confident as well. And that's it for the Innovation in Financial Inclusion podcast with me, Paul. In the next episode, I'll be discussing financial education for children and young people with Russell Winnard from Young Enterprise and Leon Ward from MyBank. If you want to find out more or contribute to the discussion, go to hub.salford.ac.uk forward slash CFS or follow us on Twitter at CFS underscore SBS. Bye for now.